Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Getting tired of higher interest rates, chasing stubborn inflation, of governments offering more of the same, and of a war with much more at stake than just money or politics. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, our contributors Larry Summers on the Fed Decision Day Wednesday, followed by the jobs numbers on Friday. The good news is economy looking robust. Uh, The bad news is not much evidence of inflation restraint yet in train. And Steve Ratner on what's at stake for investors as Americans go to the polls in the midterm elections. I think elections are hugely consequential for investors because there's a lot at stake here. This week, it sometimes felt like it was more of the same, starting with the next phase of Russia's war in Ukraine, which saw Russia target civilian facilities, as explained by John Kirby of the National Security Council. We know that this is yet another wave here. Airstrikes, uh, a lot of missiles uh, fired at, in particular the capital, fired at both power and water uh, facilities. Even as the first lady of Ukraine, Olena Zelenska, told the world just how hard it is really for the Ukrainians. Nobody can imagine how tired Ukrainians are. The threat is not just Ukrainian um, for Ukraine. Uh, for us, the fatigue means that we will perish. Meanwhile, the rest of the world continues to wrestle with the effects of the war, including higher energy prices, with President Biden promising to take action and blaming the problem, at least in part, on the oil companies. Record profits today are not because they're doing something new or innovative. 
Their profits are a windfall of war. In Brazil and in Israel, new elections yielded old results, with former President Lula da Silva narrowly winning re-election to the presidency. We've been covering the Brazil election. Of course, it's a historic, narrow victory of Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, the former president. And Benjamin Netanyahu heading to a fifth stint as prime minister of Israel. In Israel, the fifth election in four years appears ready to return Benjamin Netanyahu to power. But the main events for Global Wall Street this week came from the central banks. First and foremost from the Federal Reserve, which on Wednesday did as expected and raised interest rates another 75 basis points, with more to come, according to Chair Jay Powell. We still have some ways to go. And incoming data since our last meeting suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates will be higher than previously expected. While the Bank of England came in with its biggest increase in more than three decades Thursday, and Governor Andrew Bailey warned about what could happen if they don't take steps now. If we do not act forcefully now, it will be worse later on. And as the forecast we are publishing today shows, it is a tough road ahead. And then we ended the week with U.S. jobs numbers, which came in higher than expected, adding another 261,000 jobs, with wages going up another four-tenths of a percent over the month of September, which could have sent markets into a tizzy, but didn't, as equities had already taken a hit from what Chair Powell had to say back on Wednesday. For the week overall, the S&P 500 gave up 3.35%, the Nasdaq was off 5.65%, and the yield on the 10-year was up about 16 basis points, ending the week at 4.16%. Take us through the week in the markets. Welcome now Sharmin Mosavar Rahmani, Goldman Sachs Chief Investment Officer for Wealth Management, and Sarah Ketter, co-founder and CEO of Causeway Capital. So welcome both of you back to Wall Street. Good to have you here. Let me start with you, Sarah, if I may. So what's an investor to do with what they saw this week? A lot of turmoil. No doubt about it, David. And strong payroll data makes the Fed job much more difficult. This um, labor supply shortage situation is quite concerning. So it looks as if the Fed is going to have to continue raising rates. And this creates a tremendous headwind for the U.S. market and for markets around the world, where central banks have to move up. If not in lockstep with the Fed, they too have to be tightening in order to quell inflation that is global. Charmaine, I wonder, did Jay Powell get us ready for this to some extent? I, I'm assuming he didn't have any idea what the numbers were going to look like, but he sort of warned us on Wednesday what they were going to have to do. When we think of this number, though, I don't think we have as pessimistic a view and as pessimistic a read. In fact, you could see what happened to the market. Yeah today at the end of the day and you could say in fact the market's probably saying it's not as bad a number from a tightening and a recession perspective so in fact our view is that if you look at the non-farm payroll numbers at the beginning of the year they were averaging over three months about 600 the last three months now are about 290,000 so that's nearly half, more than half so that's a significant slowdown in the economy that we're seeing and then if you look at the average hourly earnings and you look at what the latest three numbers are, about 3.9%. The prior three months, it was 5.2. So directionally, between what the Fed has been doing and generally financial conditions in the United States, things are slowing down, and it's not insignificant. So the question is, how much does the Fed need to tighten to lower those numbers even further? And our view is that they do have more to go, but I'm not sure the idea that it's definitive, they have to go to 5% or 5 and a quarter, it's not so obvious to us. 
Okay, Sharmin Rahmani of Goldman Sachs and Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital will be staying with us as we focus on some investments outside the United States and what we expect from China, emerging markets, and Europe. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Wall Street really loves ambiguity because the truth is that while the midterm election results scarcely constituted a warm vote of confidence in President Reagan's economic program, they were far from the Democratic landslide that some pre-election forecasters were predicting. Indeed, the actual result, Republicans holding the Senate and losing 26 seats in the House, was remarkably close to the figures I gave on this program last week. That was Louis Huckabee, of course, on Wall Street Week after another midterm election two years into a new president. That president was President Reagan, and it was 1982, when it didn't come out quite as badly as Republicans had feared, something that Democrats this year are hoping for. The top movie back then was First Blood, starring Sylvester Stallone as Vietnam vet John Rambo. The number one song was Up Where We Belong by Joe Crocker and Jennifer Warren. Still with us are Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital and Charmaine Mosavar-Rahmani of Goldman Sachs. So, Charmaine, maybe some parallels with 1982, but one thing that's very different is there wasn't a lot of U.S. investment in China back in 1982. Uh, Flash forward to today, where are you on China? We've just come through that 20th National Congress. In general, we've had a very strong U.S. preeminence view, recommending clients have a significant overweight to U.S. equities, and 
in turn a significant underweight to emerging markets, which includes China. If you actually go back and look at the returns from the trough of the global financial crisis to the present, you will see that U.S. equities are up about 16% on an annualized basis and 5% in China on an annualized basis. But actually, one needs to look at the impact of that compounding. As this chart that you just put up, if you had had $100 and put it in U.S. equities today, you'd have $750. If you had put it in China, $188, not even a quarter of those returns. Now, that has prompted some people to say, well, that actually means China is very attractive. We actually think that China is not attractive. China's growth will be much slower than people expect going forward. China has overinvested in property, in infrastructure. They have a major demographic problem. So when we actually look at it on a forward basis, we think the earnings will not be there to even support these valuations. There's so much truth in that about China. It's just so interesting to see, though, that much of the big sell-off started in just uh, 2021, last year. China is currently 30% roughly of the emerging market benchmark. So it's really important. And it has both buoyed up the benchmark and dragged it down. But there's China and Taiwan together are some 45% of the index. You, you sort of can't get away from China if you want to invest in emerging markets. And one way or another, their growth rates have tended, they've tended to be faster than the U.S. in the past. And to your point, Char to your point Charmaine, they're slowing. But the opportunities there, because it's just such an enormous market, are really hard to pass up. I think of, uh, the property sector is horrible. And what place had the worst property wipeout we can think of? In the late 80s, it was Japan. And yet there was still money to be made in that what ended up being rather a stagnating situation if stock selection was good. So we're never writing off China. But what's irresistible about emerging markets, again, with China as the anchor tenant, is that it's trading at just... 20-year low in price-to-book value, and then on a price-to-earnings basis, it's also at this extraordinary t bouncing along its 20-year low versus the U.S. market and the world index. So at some point in time, you have to say the price is right for emerging markets led by China. There's no doubt about that, Sarah, but when we actually look at the price, we think you need to think about the sector weights. So emerging markets in general, and that applies to China as well, have a very different mix in terms of the sector exposure relative to the U.S. So on the surface, when you're looking at the discount from to China or emerging markets or even developed markets relative to the U.S., it looks like it's very low. But on the other hand, if you adjust for the sector weights, meaning, for example, technology is 25% of the S&P 500 and less in China, less in emerging markets, and maybe even less than half in developed markets. If you adjust the sector weights, then these uh, countries and regions are not as cheap as it appears. In fact, suddenly emerging markets, instead of being, for example, let's say a multiple of 16 for the US versus 10 for emerging markets, once you adjust the weights, it's more like 14 and a half times forward earnings. So in fact, if you adjust the sector weight, then we don't think these markets look at as cheap. And historically, that discount has not always been an indicator of good forward returns. But Sarah, you mentioned a very important point, which is stock selection. It doesn't mean that stock selection can't add value. But when we look at the countries in aggregate and broadly at sectors, we just don't find them attractive at all. 
Yeah, that's a very good point about sectors. And uh, and I'd argue this, think about it in terms of value versus growth. The growth part of the emerging market benchmark does still look pricey. But if you strip out the stocks that are in that lower valuation group, they have they just they're at lows that we haven't seen in a long time. They're very, very compelling. And they you can find those across sectors, which is pretty useful. But only for China, the catalyst, what will make China much more interesting is just a recovery. And if it turns out um, our, the head of our China office in Shanghai tells us next March is likely the date at which the the gradual reopening becomes less gradual to the point where it's so obvious that they can't be denied by the party leaders, that will create an economic tailwind for China, even with a very tough property market. And it could, interestingly, coincide with what is still slowing in the rest of the world, making China look relatively attractive. So, Sarah, I suspect we're all uh, looking for bargains and trying to avoid falling knives, right? Whether it's China or somewhere else. Talk about Europe. Uh, are there bargains in Europe at this point, or is that a falling knife? Uh, well, it fell. Um, with the Russia invasion of Ukraine in February, Europe was just awful, and it continued to be awful. And the cyclical part of Europe, any type of manufacturing, any users of natural gas were sold off heavily by markets, materials within that, chemicals, so many stocks trading at discounts to book value that indicated apocalypse. So yes, bargains in Europe, and they're still there. Some of those stocks have improved. But to the degree there isn't a harsh winter and Europe doesn't consume all of its energy, its um, gas storage reserves, which we think it won't, it, it looks as if Europe can squeak through this winter and perhaps even next. Meanwhile, there's a feverish effort there to build LNG terminals and ensure that um, there's a regasification capability. This all takes time, but Europe is united around their concern. Thank you so much to Sharmin Mosavar Rahmani of Goldman Sachs and also Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital. Coming up, control of the U.S. Congress may be up for grabs at the midterm elections on Tuesday, but what is at stake for investors? We ask Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors. That's next on Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. 
They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Tuesday's the day for Americans to decide who will be in charge up on Capitol Hill for the next two years, with expectations for the Republicans to retake control of the House. Republicans have a lot of optimism going into the election. And the Senate pretty much a toss-up. No one knows exactly what's going to happen with the Senate, with races just too close to call. But as much time and attention as we're paying to the midterms, what real difference will the outcomes make for global Wall Street? Republicans like Kevin Brady claim they will make sure less money goes to the government, which will benefit business. You'll see a push for less government spending, less taxes and less regulation to drive up inflation. You'll see a push for more American-made energy. While Democrats claim that it's all about fairness. They're going to shut down the government by not providing the votes to pay our federal debt. This is irresponsible. But some who follow it closely, like Libby Cantrell of PIMCO, question how much will really change one way or the other. The practical differences between Republicans taking back just the House and taking back both the House and the Senate are really de minimis. And to give us some answers to what difference the midterm elections might make for real investors, we now welcome somebody who is putting real money to work. He's Steve Ratner. He is chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors. They invest the personal and philanthropic assets of Michael R. Bloomberg, of course, the man who founded our company and still owns most of the shares. So welcome, Steve. It's great to have you back on Wall Street Week. Uh, so you've had experience in Washington as well as in New York on Wall Street. Uh, we spend a lot of time, people get paid a lot of money trying to analyze these elections about what they will mean for investors. What's your experience? I think elections are hugely consequential for investors because there's a lot at stake here. Take, for example, tax policy. If you want lower taxes for wealthy people in business, then obviously there's one team that you want to vote for. If you want uh, lower taxes for working people and people below, then it's another team you want to vote for. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, policy decisions. We've seen an enormous amount of legislative activity these last two years, particularly this year, and that's the kind of thing that happens after an election. So, as you say, we've had a lot of legislation through Congress. This is the last Congress, and particularly given the fact that it was really evenly divided in Congress. So looking back, before we look forward, do you think overall that was good for investors, not so good? I'm not sure it was great for investors, but a lot of it was stuff that we really needed to do for the sake of our economy, particularly the climate change. I don't think we should kid ourselves. Addressing climate change is going to be expensive for companies and therefore for investors, but we have to do it. Uh, prescription drug uh, uh, costs we have to get under control. So I think from an investor's point of view, some of this may cost them some money, but I think there were things that had to be done for society as a whole. Uh, looking forward to the midterms, we don't know what the results will be, obviously, but some people are projecting we could have a switch in the majority in either the House or the Senate, or even conceivably in both. Uh, if you get a divided government, uh, which is what that would be essentially, is that potentially good for investors simply because they won't do very much at all? They can't get much done, and there's some stability. 
yes, I think you're right. If we have divided government, it's highly unlikely, particularly in the run-up to another presidential, that we're going to get much done. Look, it depends what you think the alternative is. If you think the alternative was a Congress and a White House controlled by people who essentially wanted to make investors happy, then obviously that's not as good and vice versa. I, I happen to personally believe we still have huge problems in this country that we need to address, long-term structural problems like the debt and the deficit, for example. And having government frozen is not really the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to be able to legislate every year, not just every year out of one year out of five, or four, or something like that. You oversee the investment of a lot of money, and not necessarily investing yourself, but really overseeing people who do that. In the course of doing that, do you take into account which industries, which companies might do better under a Republican administration rather than a Democratic one? Sure. You can easily see, and as you point out, most of our money is invested through other managers who do actual stock picking and so forth. But we spend a lot of time meeting with them, as you would imagine. And yes, absolutely, they think a lot about what might happen in Washington and how that would affect the investability use a word that might not be a word, of different sectors, different industries, different companies. So sure, what goes on in Washington, I don't think any investor would tell you that what goes on in Washington isn't incredibly consequential for the economy, and therefore, we all pay a lot of attention to it. Um, uh, this week, we had the Federal Reserve come out, uh, raise interest rates another 75 basis points. Uh, if you can compare and contrast Fed decisions on where we are on the 10-year yield, for example, versus uh, who is in charge of Congress, which is more consequential potentially for investors? Well, I personally think the Fed is the biggest game in town in terms of affecting the economy. Uh, I'm not quite a Milton Friedman monetarist, but I, I believe enough in the power of monetary policy to believe that it's, uh, it is the biggest thing that affects the economy. And by the way, it probably affects the stock market even more directly in a sense. When interest rates go up, it's the enemy of stock prices. They tend to go down. You've seen that happen this year and vice versa during 2020-21 when the Fed poured all that liquidity into the market, the market went up. The old saying, don't fight the Fed. So I watch the Fed very closely and I think it is, it is far more of an influence on the economy than Congress. Steve, so great to have you back on Wall Street. Thank Thanks you so much. much. That's Steve Ratner. He is chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors. Coming up, we'll wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're joined once again by our very special contributor on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, welcome back. We had a lot of economic news this week. We had jobs numbers and we had Fed results, of course. Let's start with the jobs numbers because they came in, I think, at least relatively strong. How did you interpret them? I saw it the same way. Uh, look, the population only grows by about 50,000 adults a month. So anytime you have 250,000 uh, jobs, you're growing at a rate that you're not going to be ultimately able to uh, sustain. It shows that still the economy is uh, looking uh, quite strong, no recession uh, soon. You saw wages uh, tick up. So the good news is economy looking robust. Uh, the bad news is not much evidence of inflation res 
restraint yet in train. Of course, when Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, spoke earlier on Wednesday, he didn't know what those jobs numbers were being, I don't believe. At the same time, what he said anticipated just what you just said is that inflation continues, they're going to have to keep hiking. I assume you thought what they did made sense. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of uh, bouncing around immediately after the statement. But after Chairman Powell's press uh, conference, I thought the necessary and right signal um, has been uh, sent that the Fed is determined to stay the course with respect to inflation, that a sensible judgment of where the terminal rate, how high Fed funds will ultimately have to go, has gone up given the strong inflation numbers, the strong uh, employment numbers uh, that we've seen, and uh, that the Fed is uh, determined. So I thought those were very much the right kind of signals uh, for the Fed to send, and I think it's uh, appropriate. I think we are starting to get some little suggestion in the data, we don't know yet, and we always have to remember about lags, that the effect of interest rates on slowing the economy might in toto be somewhat less than many people supposed. And if that's right, I think it's going to be pressure for interest rates to be pushed up further in order to get done the necessary uh, inflation uh, restriction. So I'm moving upwards my view on the possibilities for uh, the terminal rate. It's not what I would expect, but it would not surprise me if the terminal rate uh, reached uh, six or more. And I think the Fed has to be noticing that there's been started to be some upwards moves in inflation expectations, albeit from uh, low levels. And that's got to be a source of concern uh, for them uh, as well. Larry, we're also beginning to get some suggestions, including even by some economists like Mark Zandi, uh, that in fact the, the real cause of the inflation is more a matter of supply rather than demand. And because of that, it's not going to be really effective to just try to curtail demand through increased rates. And therefore, by beginning of next year, maybe they should start cutting back. What do you make of that suggestion? I have to respectfully say that I can't really see a lot of logic in uh, the views that Zandi and those like him are uh, expressing. Look, the basic fact is that the way you tell a supply shock from a demand shock, both of them raise prices. but. When there's a supply shock, quantity falls. When there's a demand shock, output is strong. And output has been very strong. Employment has been uh, very strong. The people who talk about supply shocks, it's really just the last readout of Team Transitory. First, it was a story about uh, COVID uh, ending quickly. Then it was a story about COVID ending uh, 
slow ending uh, slowly, it keeps bouncing around what the story is. We've still got high core inflation and gasoline prices were mostly down for a period of uh, more than uh, th more than three months. So I don't hear the story. Uh, very simple ways of looking at the data. Look at what's happening to uh, nominal GDP total dollar volume of GDP. If that's going up rapidly, that tells you that uh, demand is going up uh, strongly. Uh, Larry, another issue that is rearing its head, you've seen this issue before, and that's the debt ceiling uh, up in Congress, because we're going to be pushing up against it sometime in the new year, maybe not even too far into the new year. We're now seeing some talk on Capitol Hill that perhaps, particularly Republicans, if they come into power, will actually hold that hostage to get some other changes they want, particularly in things like entitlement. What's your experience with the debt ceiling? What should we be doing? There are a lot of bad ideas in American politics, but I think it's close to the worst idea in American politics that we should hold hostage the creditworthiness of the country, threatening to default for the first time in 250 years, and the ransom that people want is taking Social Security benefits away from retirees not a single one of whom gets more than $40,000 from uh, Social Security. It is almost impossible to see a worse idea, either in terms of the hostage taking or the uh, desired uh, ransom. The right thing to do is for us to raise that debt ceiling for a long time so it won't be a uh, political football. And I hope uh, that as many responsible Americans as possible can say, look, yes, yes, I am for entitlement reform. I am for looking at the long run uh, deficit picture, but hostage taking uh, to cut uh, Social Security is wrong. And I hope uh, some of the business leaders who watch this show, whose PACs are giving money to support the people who are advocating that, will convey that as responsible financial leaders, they know that their companies and all our fellow citizens have a, have a stake in the United States uh, not playing games of chicken with our country's creditworthiness. Thank you so much. That's Larry Summers, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He is, of course, from Harvard University. Finally, one more thought. Second act, they're what most of us hope for, but F. Scott Fitzgerald once thought Americans may not get. History is full of people who were counted out and came back, sometimes even stronger than ever, like Richard Nixon losing to JFK in 1960 and coming back to take the presidency, go to China, and win re-election by the second largest margin ever, though it did end rather badly with that whole Watergate thing. I shall leave this office with regret at not completing my term, but with gratitude for the privilege of serving as your president. And Steve Jobs, driven from the company he founded, only to return when Apple was at death's door. Apple needs to find where it is still incredibly relevant and focus on those areas. Apple has neglected its core assets for a while. And take it to greater things than anyone could have imagined, revolutionizing the way we communicate and live our lives. These are not three separate devices. This is one device.
and we are calling it iPhone. While Michael Jordan, who retired after winning three NBA championships, went to play baseball, sort of, and then returned to the Bulls to three-peat yet again. There is a reason you call somebody the Michael Jordan of. <laughs> he is the definition of somebody so good at what they do. But those, those are the second acts that worked. There are others that didn't go so well, like Teddy Roosevelt, who wanted his second act so badly that he turned on his own Republican Party when it refused to nominate him, created the ill-fated Bull Moose Party, and succeeded only in putting Democrat Woodrow Wilson in the White House. Or Tiger Woods, arguably the greatest golfer of all time, who crashed and burned figuratively and then literally, and valiantly tried to come back and play through the pain which we all watched with sympathy and, yes, a bit of regret. My body certainly can get better, um, but uh, realistically, not a whole lot. At 46, you don't quite heal as well as you do at 26. This week, we got our fair share of new second acts to watch, with Luis Inacio Lula da Silva becoming the once and future president of Brazil, narrowly beating out the current president, Jair Bolsonaro. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has broken his silence on his election loss, promising to respect the Constitution, but still stopping short of formally conceding. And talk about a comeback. Less than three years ago, Lula was in a Brazilian prison on money laundering charges, released only when a higher court ruled that the original sentencing court didn't have jurisdiction to convict him in the first place. And then there's the biggest comeback kid of them all, Bibi Netanyahu over in Israel, poised to come back for a fifth time as prime minister, ducking and weaving and moving ever further toward the religious right, but doing whatever it takes to survive. Former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu looks poised to return to power after the fifth election since 2019. Time will tell whether the second acts of Messrs. Lula da Silva and Netanyahu look more like Tiger Woods or like Steve Jobs. A lot of times people think they're crazy, but in that craziness we see genius. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.